The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Good morning. Welcome. I'm Cheryl Phillips, and I'm guest hosting today for Kate Ebner. I'm also a faculty member in our coaching program and our transformational leadership program. We're so pleased today to welcome Bridget Schulte to our show. Uh, Bridget is the author of Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has a Time. Don't you just love that title? It grabs you right away. She's also a Washington Post reporter and part of a working couple and mother of two kids here in the Washington, D.C. area. We can see already why she wrote this book. <laughs> we're, so, we're so excited to talk to you, Bridget, about all the stories and uh, research and concepts in the book, as well as like really some of the practical tips that you share. Um, and really, I'm, I'm very interested in what you've learned over this past year. Uh, as you've been promoting the book and talking about this topic, and you know, you're kind of we're almost exactly one year later since the book was written. So welcome. So so glad that you're here on a Monday morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's just great to talk with you. Yeah. So here we are. We're both in the nation's capital. We're not together, but we're both here. <laughs> uh, you know, and sometimes I think we're like the nation's busy capital or the capital of busy or something, some <laughs> some brand that I would give to Washington. Uh, and we're kind of looking forward at our own weeks and our own calendars. And, and those things together uh, really, to me, sort of accentuate why this book is so important. Because I know when I pull my calendar out for the week, I can feel that, that rush of overwhelm. Um, so could you kick us off just by giving us a sense of uh, what made you decide to research this particular topic? Um, Certainly. Well, first of all, just let me say again, thanks so much for having me, uh, uh, you know, uh, talk about these issues. And I have to be perfectly honest. Um, I was living this kind of busy, crazy life and fast forward. And like you, I thought, well, it's because I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm a reporter for the Washington Post. I'm kind of type A. Maybe I'm just really driven and crazy. And um, and what was so interesting, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but in in the course of reporting this book, I very quickly discovered that it's not just Washington, D.C. It is not just me as a working mother. Um, it's really, it's so pervasive, this sense that there's just too much going on and it's too fast. I found it not just in the big cities that you would expect, like New York or L.A. or Chicago. I found it, uh, you know, kind of everywhere, people just sort of feeling this breathless quality of life that there's, 
too much work, that they're not spending enough time with their kids or their family. Nobody's taking time to play. They all think that it's not worthwhile. And, and there's just kind of like this, this feeling that you get to the end of the day and you're just sort of crashed against the shore of your life. Like, and you don't really have time to think about what are you so busy for and what, what are, where are you going with it all. And I have to be perfectly honest, I didn't have any time or thought I didn't have any time to think about any of that. I was just hanging on by my fingernails trying to get to the end of the day and never feeling like I did enough work or it was good enough, never feeling like I was a, a good enough parent. Um, or, or wife or daughter or friend, just, um, and, and certainly never taking time to, to pause or relax or, uh, or play. I always thought that I didn't deserve it, that I just didn't have enough time. I was always busy and productive, and there was always something else to do on my to-do list. And so in the middle of all of this, uh, I was appointed to a committee at the Washington Post where we were looking at our readership numbers and noticing, um, this is for the print paper a couple years ago, noticing that women were not reading the paper as much as they had in the past and certainly weren't, weren't reading it as much as, as men. And so I was part of a committee looking at that. Well, why? Uh, and the, the committee was all women, and we looked around, and we're like, well, bah! You know, women are really busy and trying to read the newspaper in the morning. Are you kidding? That's just one more thing that you got to do on top of the dishes and folding some laundry and making sure the kids get up and making lunches. And, you know, then are you ready for your meetings? And what about this interview? You know, it's just like there's just so much to get started on the day. It's like reading the newspaper was just like one other thing. And so we figured, well, women are just too busy in the mornings, and we wanted to get the data to show that. And so I offered to do that, and I, I ended up finding a time use researcher. I didn't even know there was such a field, and now I've read so many time diary data studies. It's crazy. I've got a whole file, file, uh, filing cabinet full of these studies that are fascinating. But at the time, I didn't know anything about it, and I called this one researcher, and I said, we're doing a, a story and, you know, we're looking at why women are so busy. Uh, you know, we just figure they don't have the time to read the newspaper. And he just said, wrong, you're wrong. Women are not busy. <laughs> women have 30 hours of leisure a week. You know, and I just felt like, well, who is that? You know, I thought, I, that doesn't sound anything remotely like my life. I said, you're crazy. I don't have 30 hours of leisure. And he said, yes, you do. Come and do a time study with me, and I will show you where your leisure is. So honestly, that's how this whole book started. I did the time study with him, and part of me was furious, and I wanted to prove this guy wrong. Like, no, I'm, I'm busy, and I don't have a choice. And part of me was terrified, because what if he was right? And I did have this time, but I didn't know it, and I was somehow squandering it. That, that was a terrifying thought. So you have to tell us a little bit more about that because I love um, I love a couple things about this. First, that it took you a whole year <laughs> to do the time study. A year so and that half. alone is so telling. And then I'd love if you could tell our audience just a, a, a little bit about um, where he eventually sort of found your time and also weave into there the term that I think is your term, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, of time confetti because that's just so to me, is exactly what you've just described to us, is that idea of time confetti. Yeah, that is, uh, that is something that I, I, I did come up with. Um, so, uh, so I did the time diary, and it's really funny. He sent me this template that was really, um, you know, everything in like these neat, clean lines. What time did it start? What, what, how would you describe the activity? And it was crazy. I, I called him up, and I said, my time doesn't fit in these neat little categories. It's sort of like... 
everything all at once, all the time. And uh, I, I actually ended up adding my own little category called doing anything else. Because <laughs> I found I was like multitasking, or if you counted worrying, I was like triple tasking all the time. It just My brain was constantly kind of on fire going all the time. And he just said, oh, just keep a, keep a journal and I'll figure it out. So I did. I started writing down like not only what I was doing, but how I felt about it. You know, so I've got all of these, uh, I carried these little black books around, and it's really funny when I go back to them. It's like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Who are these people in Starbucks sitting here drinking coffee? <laughs> I hate them. You know, because I never felt like I had that kind of time. Yeah. And I was jealous. So I, um, I brought this up to him, and he, started, he took one look, and he just said, oh, too, too stream of consciousness. You know, uh, do you have anything that's, that's a little easier to read? So I had typed up one week, and you're right, I'd put it off for a year and a half. I just was too busy to track my time. And, I, and so I typed up this one week, and I gave it to him, and he took out a yellow highlighter. And that's why I love the cover of my book so much, is because that's what he did to my time. He highlighted everything that he called leisure. And I looked at it, and it was like laying in bed, being exhausted, listening to NPR for 20 minutes, trying to get out of bed. And he, he called that leisure. I'm like, what? I'm tired. <laughs> and he said, nope, listening to the radio, that's leisure time. And then um, every time I got exercise, he considered that leisure. And I was like, okay, I get that because there is a matter of choice to it. But I didn't like it. You know, it's like when I thought of leisure, I was thinking of like laying in a hammock and somebody brings you fruity drinks and you don't have to fold the laundry, you know, you don't have to worry about what to make for dinner. So it wasn't anything like what I considered leisure time. And then the thing that really blew my mind is I'd taken my daughter to a ballet class and my old station wagon broke down yet again, and we I sort of coasted over to the side of the road, and we waited for a tow truck to come for two hours. And he took out his highlighter, and he's like, screech. And I'm like, you're kidding me. I'm waiting for a tow truck for two hours? That's leisure? And well, he just said, oh, you're with your daughter, so that's child care. I'm like, oh, so if I'd been alone in my car, that would have been leisure time? And he just shrugged and he said, well, I just measure time. I'm not a chronotherapist. <laughs> so he's, he's attempting really to categorize time. And as you, as you looked at it, you, you really could see that that was not anything to do with leisure, anything to do with even a balance of time for you, how, whatever, whatever, however we want to call that. And it, for those who have not yet seen your book, I'll, I'll just describe it real quickly. So the cover is one of the most amazing covers. I was with a, a friend yesterday, and she saw the cover. She said, oh, I thought you wrote all that on there, because it's literally Bridget's to-do list, which just scribbles sort of everywhere, everything from sort of sunscreen, underline, to fill out the camp forms. People in D.C. can relate to that right now. Right. To take Max to vet. I'm assuming that's a cat or a dog, right? Hey, that's our cat. And then, you know, um, meetings with certain people. Taxes, I've got that underlined on mine right now. Yes. And it's just that overwhelming feeling, literally, of all the things we have to do. So, so what did? Uh, so, what is the concept of time confetti to to you? What, what does that mean for our listeners? And and I like to start to move into. So, what are we going to do about all this? Yeah, what is right. time confetti? So, so basically, uh, it really it was something that came to me as I was I was tracking my time and. Um, you know, really writing down what I was doing um, really pretty faithfully and how crazy all of that was. And I was cleaning up. Our, our son was 11 at the time, and I was cleaning up after his 11-year-old birthday party 
while my husband was smoking a cigar on the back porch. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so that is something that has since changed. But at the time, you know, I was kind of doing it all, and we'd had confetti, and, and I was sweeping it up, and, and it just, that image just really hit me, that that's what my time felt like, little bits and scraps, some of them colorful, some of them not. And, uh, and I just had this, this kind of, this sort of a sadness, like, well, what does this ever add up to, all these little bits and pieces? Is this, is this all there is? Is this enough? And, um, and so that, that is a, a term that I wrote about, feeling very scattered and fragmented, that my time was really, really in little bits and, and pieces. Yeah, and trying to make something, something whole out of all those bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. And Bridget, so you talked about uh, that it's not just we can tease about being in D.C. and being so busy or New York or other big cities, um, but you talked about that as you did your research, it really isn't, it's not just us. And um, I love the story about Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> and and I, I particularly, so as you know, we're a leadership institute and, a, and a, we have a leadership program and a coaching program. And we talk really predominantly about um, language being the power of language and how generative language is. Our use of language is going to create really a lot of our reality, or at least um, head us in a certain reality over another. And so I I love uh, the story of Fargo, North Dakota, and the story of Anne Burnett, who's the researcher of the holiday cards. And that, when I was reading your book, I have to say that was a piece that grabbed me so hard. Uh, And I never used the word that you're going to talk about in a minute any longer, or I try not to. So tell tell our listeners that story. It's so fascinating. Yeah, this is so interesting. Well, I began, um, this all came out of a conversation I had with a leisure leisure researcher when I was uh, trying to figure out, well, you know, did I have these 30 hours? And if it didn't feel like I did, why didn't I? And when I was talking to, to this one leisure researcher, Ben Honeycutt, he's in Iowa, um, and he said, well, do you ever feel like you have leisure? And I'm like, no, I'm just too busy, uh, you know? And I, and I felt like that was a good answer, that it was good that I was so busy, that I was being productive or somehow virtuous. And he kind of stopped, and he had this pause, and he said, oh, one of the seven deadly sins. And I was really offended. It's like, what? I, you know, I'm busy. I thought that was a good thing. What do you mean, a, 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 one of a mortal sin? And he said that in the Middle Ages, the, the sin of sloth had a flip side, which was called acedia. He, and he, the way he described it is like, I don't know where I'm going, but I sure as heck am running really fast to get there. You know, this sense of being on a treadmill and yeah. busy and just going, 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 but you don't really know where you are. And he said the reason why sloth and acedia were the same thing is that you were, um, there was a sense that you were not connected to your own soul that you were kind of either avoiding things or covering up in busyness or covering up in in sloth and and laziness and doing nothing but they were the same thing. So I was I was first really furious <laughs> but then really fascinated by that and I wondered, well why did I feel like it was such a good thing that I was so busy all the time? And I wanted to understand that more and I uh and I just even when you think about you're talking about the power of words 
every time I talked to somebody, you know, when you would ask, how are you doing? It was just the way we spoke to each other. Right. It was almost like you didn't even think about it. Oh, we're so busy. This is what we're doing. Oh, my gosh, we're so fried. Oh, we've got too much to do. We don't even, we don't even use the word fine anymore. No, you know, When we say, how are you, it starts with busy or crazy or something. Crazy, yeah. and then you go through yeah. a litany of all the stuff that you're doing, and it's just become the way we talk to each other. Yep. And so I really was interested in this, and I found, um, I found a researcher who researches phonetic families in L.A., and I thought, oh, this will be perfect. I'll, because in writing this book, I wanted not only my story to be kind of like the flawed narrator, if you will, uh, <laughs> on this journey to try to understand time and understand the good life, if you will, uh, but also uh, as a reporter, I wanted it to be very grounded in data and science, and as a narrative writer, I wanted to have other narratives and stories. And so I called this researcher, and I was all set to go out to L.A. to report about frenetic families. And then he called up and he said, you know, I'm just really too busy to have you come out. Oh, <laughs> what irony, right? And then I was panicked because I thought, well, my deadline's approaching, and I've got to, how am I going to write this chapter? And I went to a database uh, of researchers, and I found this one researcher in North Dakota who studies busyness and the fast pace of life, and I couldn't believe it. And I called her up, and I said, Fargo, North Dakota, are you kidding me? And she just said, oh, yeah, you know, she's been studying, North, uh, she's been studying holiday letters um, since the 1960s. And so I went out, and we went through her archive together, and it was unbelievable. You could really see this kind of rise of busyness. Uh, you know, in the past couple decades to the point where some of the letters now, they're like brag sheets for how you don't even have time to live. This one woman r- writes about how she drives 100 miles a day in her carpool. And, you know, somebody else, uh, you know, they traveled over Memorial Day weekend to seven Midwestern states and they drove. It's like, oh, my gosh, they never sat down. They never sat still. So everybody is just living life and fast forward. And Anne Burnett is a communications professor. So just like she, you said, she studies how our words shape our reality. And so she goes through all the different letters and she circles all of these, these, the language that we use, you know, faster than the speed of light, so busy we can't breathe, we're crazy, crazy, busy, busy. And um, so it's in, the, in the holiday letters, these, in this the was holiday the language, letters. isn't that amazing? Yes. Yeah. And it's not just me, the grown-up, it's also the children now as well, right? Everybody's, yes. and yes. they're doing a hundred different activities and everybody's crazy. And so her argument is that we have made busyness a virtue. Yes. Busyness is how we show our status how we show we're important, you know, um, it's sort of like keeping up with the Joneses. If you're not busy, that somehow something's wrong with you. Yes. And it it is really, you know, I love that you introduced the term blorfed from Tina Fey, right? (laughs) That blorfed, B-L-O-R-F-T, completely overwhelmed but proceeding as if everything is fine. Yes. Right? And it's so descriptive of of what's happening with that busy culture. Yes. Um, and what do you think, now that you've been up to this, and, and we're going to go to a break here in a minute, but what do you think? Do you, uh, do you think that people um, are a victim to the busyness, or it has become a badge of honor, now that you've been sort of thinking about this in this past year? Can you just give me a quick answer to that, and then we'll pick it up after the break. Well, I think it's both. I think that human beings, you know, if you look, we're wired to conform, and right now, the, you know, we conform to kind of like a, the larger society, and right now society values busyness. And so we all, nobody wants to be left out. Nobody wants to be seen as a loser. And so we're all kind of like 
scurrying around trying to keep up with each other. So it's it's sort of it's sort of both, and the way to get it to stop is going to take each of us kind of like jumping off that treadmill for ourselves and just taking a deep breath and figuring out, wait a minute, where am I going? What is it that I want? And finding a network of supportive peers because it's hard to change and it's hard to go against the status quo on your own. Yeah. So we're going to go to a break, and when we get back, uh, uh, let's pick it up there, and we'll also talk about what leaders can do in their own organizations to try to break this cycle. Thanks, Bridget. We'll be right back. Thanks. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Hi, everyone. It's Cheryl Phillips, guest hosting for Kate today, and I'm here with Bridget Schulte, and we've been talking about her book, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play, When No One Has the Time, and how she got interested in it. And we've just come off a a conversation about how our language really shapes our reality. And um, the holiday card researcher, Ann Burnett, who found that we just increasingly use language, even in our holiday cards, like busy and so crazy and full, packed year, 
And uh, I jokingly was talking with someone yesterday about how, what about the people who don't even have time to write the cards anymore, right? (laughs) There's that, too. Right. So I wonder if we could uh, shift a bit into, so we have many leaders that listen to our show, and I'd like to take us into the organizational and sort of the culture side of things. And rather than starting with the sort of uh, problems in the U.S., we do know that, that we as a nation, for all the reasons we've just been talking about, haven't really modernized the way we think about work and life, and certainly not work, life, and leisure, right? That's um, absolutely true. Yeah. And I'd love to start, instead of starting with the, the depressing news, I wonder if we could start with where it is being done well. Um, sort of the aspirational side, and and can you talk a bit about what you found in the Netherlands and specifically in Denmark? Right. Uh, You know, and I think that that uh, that was a big point that I wanted to do, uh, that I wanted to look for in the book, was not just describing why we're overwhelmed and not just describing what it is, because we all know what it feels like. You know, we don't need anybody to tell us that, but why it's there and what to do about it. And again, being a reporter, I wanted to find the real world examples of where things are shifting or where things are different. And I went to Denmark because I went to a time use conference and someone threw up these slides on leisure time and you know and it was unbelievable because um people in Denmark had more leisure time than anywhere else in in this study and there were like seven or eight countries in this study including the United States. Men and women had almost the same amount of time for leisure which was vastly different. Most other countries, men have far more leisure than women, even in the United States. Mm-hmm. And mothers had about as much uh, leisure time as fathers, and they had the most what researchers called pure leisure or time to themselves, or what we would con- call me time. And, you know, me time is what all the women's magazines said, oh, we got, how do you get me time, right. how to make time for it? And none of us feel like we ever have it, right? And so I thought, wow, i got to figure out what they're doing there if they have all this leisure time. And the reason I ended up writing the whole chapter is because I very quickly discovered that you can't make time for leisure, and certainly not pure leisure, unless you have your workplace wired and unless you have looked at gender roles and you've changed the way people think and act and talk about gender roles. And so what I found in Denmark, which was so fascinating, are people who work very intensively but intense short hours. Uh, the culture there is such that if you work long hours, like we tend to value in the United States, if you work long hours in Denmark, they think, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get your work done on time? So it's not a badge of honor, whereas here in the United States, that is something that we value. Um, There have been economic studies that show we tend to reward people more who stay at the office longer, whether they're productive or not. We're not measuring their performance or their productivity we're just measuring their hours in the office, and we tend to think, wow, they're really committed. Uh, and so I think that was one thing that was a huge eye-opener to me, because when, you, when I started working on this book, I thought, well, you know, the United States, we work these long hours, but maybe that's what it takes to be a great economy, this great, diverse, you know, robust economy, uh, right. all this innovation. Maybe that's just what it requires. And the fascinating thing is, number one, all of that, particularly the long hours in the startup community, that is still seen as uh, not only a badge of honor, but just what you have to do. Well, the ironic thing is 95% of those startups fail. 
So all of that work and innovation doesn't necessarily pay off. So you're kind of like losing your life for what, number one. And number two, when you look at these international comparisons of productivity per hour, per hour worked, so not just the hours that you're putting in at the FaceTime at the office, but the hours that you're truly productive, they uh, divide GDP per hours worked. And it's amazing. Denmark is about as productive per hour as we are. That's and so, so interesting. It, it's, it, it really like goes against what we would, would think, right? It's completely counterintuitive to the United States where, you know, we've always valued hard work, uh, you know, and we've always taken a lot of our identity from work in the United States. We talk about the Protestant work ethic and idle hands are a devil's workshop. So we have a, a real culture of, of valuing work and hard work. And, and I think we should. I think that's a great thing. But, but something has happened in recent years where hard work has now kind of morphed into overwork where all we're doing is working, and particularly you layer technology on top of that when you can be available all the time. Uh, on the one hand, it gives you great freedom, and on the other hand, it's really enslaving us to this kind of 24-7, constantly on kind of mentality so that even when you're out of the office, you're never really mentally or psychically away. And that's the other thing that's been really interesting is looking at uh, like motivation science and human performance science and neuroscience that's showing where you get your insight or innovation. And this is really what we need to value as we move more and more into a knowledge economy. Insight comes in those moments off work. Your right. brain is literally wired to get your best ideas in the shower when you are not working, when you are on a walk, that you have these two systems in your brain and one you need for that kind of concentrated work, but the other you need, it, the, the default mode network kind of lights up when you're idle, when you're not thinking actively. And you need both of those systems to be able to work most effectively. And so there's a really interesting kind of movement that I tend to write more about on effective work. And it does. It's very, it goes against everything that we hold dear in the United States that, you know, if you get home at two in the morning, you're, you've put in a good day's work and then some. It's really not true. And that the tireder you get and the more you kind of work yourself into the ground, the less likely you are able to have insight to uh, build effective communications, uh, to have a, not only a functional workplace, but to do really good work. You know, it's, it's so uh, interesting because intuitively we know this, right? We know when we're burned out, we know we can't think straight anymore when we've got so much incoming, as we might call it. And you talk about in that whole, you know, in the writing pieces about the organizational life and culture, you talk about how the U.S. is a little bit still trapped in sort of the ideal worker norm, that, you know, we're there 40 hours or 50 hours or 60 hours or 80 hours. We're on site instead of working remotely and so forth. But then you also do talk about some of the, um, in your When Work Works chapter, you talk about some of the bright spots of people doing things a little bit differently. And so I wonder, um, I'd love to hear just a little bit, and I'm probably going to mispronounce it, the, the Womobijos, is oh, that? the Womobijos, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also maybe the, the Roe Initiative. Because what I'd love to hear is, is sort of any tips from, from those folks kind of doing things differently that leaders could really apply in, in their organizations. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and, and I've continued to work uh, and, and do reporting along these lines uh, at the Washington Post. And in the book, I write about 
um, really interesting companies that are doing it differently, uh, have kind of organized work and life differently, and are growing, are making money, <laughs> uh, are doing all the things that business uh, you know is is designed to do. And what's so fascinating is that people are happier. They're more. Uh, they're feeling more fulfilled in their lives, and they're doing great work. So, for instance, one of the places that I, I profile is Menlo Innovations. It's a uh, fast-growing um, technology firm in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, the the uh, founder there. He'd been in corporate America and worked those long hours and never saw his daughters and was so miserable that he actually thought that he would quit entirely and go like start a canoe company in the Boundary Waters. He just wanted out. And then he thought, well, wait a minute. I really love what I do. I love technology. I love the possibility of how it can make life better for people. What if I founded my own company and based it on one principle, and that's joy? And to be joyful, you need to have meaningful work. You have to have time for your own life, people that you love, you know, whether you've got your own family or yeah. you're, you have friends or want to be a part of a community or go to school or go kayaking or whatever. You have to have a life. And you, and you need to play. You need time to recharge. And so they work very short, intensive hours, like in Denmark. And when I say short, I'm talking about a 40-hour work week. I mean, that's the crazy thing. <laughs> you know, when did working 40 hours become, like, you know, short? Exactly. Short, right? <laughs> so I should say they work in a, you know, a normal, a reasonable, they work yes. a normal work week. Um, and then after, after 6 o'clock, it's pretty much cleared out. They do. They don't do remote work there. Different different companies that I profile have different um, formula, if you will, based on what they need and what their industry is. And so for them, they want people together to have that kind of um, you know brainstorming and synergy and kind of creative um, bouncing off one another. So they value that in their work. So they do want people in the office. But uh, after 6 o'clock, when you've put in your 7.5 hours for the day, they want you gone. They do not want you answering emails or uh, work phone calls. They want you to be with your family. They want you to refresh yourself. And more interestingly, they want you to kind of change the channel in your brain, to make connections, to see other things, so that you'll come back the next day not only refreshed and not only feeling like you've had time for your family and your life, but perhaps you'll have a new way to solve an old problem because you've had the time to turn on that other brain system. So that was interesting. I found law firms that um, are really blowing up the billable hour culture. Law firms are, I mean, they're crazy the way they're organized and the, the long work hours they require. And it's, it's, Everybody knows it's crazy, and lawyers are depressed, and their suicide rates are really high. <laughs> yeah, and um, I love the story about the female lawyer, female partner who put like says she's not in for a little while, and then goes and gets her daughter off the bus, right, and then comes back in when when it makes sense, right. So just a different way of working. Well, completely different, and they work almost all remotely, so it's different from the high tech firm. Um, and they have designed a kind of a virtual workplace, if you will, where people connect uh, online like you would on Facebook. Um, and there are a whole series for the paperback that's just come out. There's a whole series of law firms that I've profiled. They call themselves the new normal. Oh, very um, interesting. Because, uh, because they realize that the old normal doesn't work for anybody, and you work those long hours, and you're basically working so that someday you'll, you'll be a partner and maybe have a little bit more time and a whole lot more money. And by then, you know, your kids will be grown, and you may not know them, and you will have missed, like, a couple decades of your life. So, so law firms are changing. 
uh, for the Washington Post, I've written about another uh, uh, high-tech company in Portland, Oregon, where they work a 32-hour work week. And they do that because they work very efficiently for four days. And, this, and that comes from the CEO. Uh, the other thing that I found that was very interesting is that leaders set the tone for the organization, but it's critical for the middle managers to buy in. So you can't just say, you know, hey, this is a great idea, and here's the policy. Because if the, if the informal culture is such that it still values the ideal worker, nothing will change, and the workers will not take that policy. But if the leader not only believes it but lives it and then makes sure that all of the middle managers along the way understand what the value is, that it's performance-driven and not hours-driven, that's when you see real, real interesting things happen. Um, and I like the idea that it, you know, so, so we have leaders at all levels that might be listening, and some of it you can, you, you are at the tippy-top, and you can be the one to say, okay, we're going to a 32-hour work week, or our mission is joy, right? Uh, and you may not be there. You may be the middle manager or the first-line supervisor or the team lead. And what I like about some of these stories is that you can imagine that you could also set the tone or the the um, the team norms for your group uh, without completely changing policy, without completely changing the policies of the U.S. for that matter. So you may not be able to give somebody more maternity leave or say that we're going to work 30 hours instead of 40, but you can say, you know, after 6, we're not texting each other. You know, uh, we are going to play together in certain ways. We are, we have at our primary, as our pri- one of our primary uh, norms that we care about each other and care about each other's time off it, and, and allow and uh, allow for that, right? So you well, can do this at all levels. You really, you really can. I mean, the book does call for change on, on both that larger level as well as the individual level. And the larger, that structural change, I mean, the fact that the United States is the only advanced economy without a paid parental leave program, without paid sick days, without paid vacation days, you know, it's kind of crazy. In the 1930s, the United States really led the world in, uh, in policies to give workers humane and, and reasonable work conditions. And we really are at the bottom of the barrel now, and that's really interesting why. Uh, and I think that, you know, so there are those larger conversations that we need to have in businesses and in, and in politics about, well, well, what is reasonable and what is, you know, what would make sense for our families, for our businesses, when you've got more than 60, 60% of all uh, U.S. households uh, have two, you know, have all parents working in the workforce. Yep. So the workforce has changed dramatically from the from the from the uh, basically from the workforce policies and laws that we have in place right now and so that is a conversation that we need to have um, and yet at the same time you're right there are a lot of things that people can do all up and down the the the, the organizational structure if you will and I did find lots of that when I was out reporting and you see uh, team leaders um, really focused on, well, what's the mission? What do we need to get done? How can we best do it? And then when you organize around the mission uh, rather than the hours, you benefit not just, you know, say, working mothers or working parents. You benefit everybody. Everybody, yes. And that's, I think that's the important thing. The most successful companies I found did not make this a kind of, quote-unquote, women's initiative, did not make this about, quote-unquote, working moms or working parents, but really made it about how you work effectively 
understanding that everybody needs time for life. Because what you don't want is you don't want to pit the parents against the, the you know, people who don't have kids. And that does happen a lot in workplaces. You don't want to give uh, people like, oh, well, she can get flexibility because she needs to do the childcare pickup. But, oh, you're going to college or you're doing this in your spare time. Well, that's not as important. Well, that just creates tension and sort of like this hierarchy of, uh, you know, values, which really doesn't, you know, I, I think we need to, to value all of our workers. Absolutely. And, you know, so I threw out two acronyms, but I'm just going to quickly say what they are in the book. And, and folks, of course, can, even on your website right now, one of them is showing up, which is ROWE, R-O-W-E, which is an initiative that, that someone, uh, a consultant created, which is results-only work environment. So it's really looking at how can we be focused on the results instead of how many hours we're working. Um, so, Bridget, we're going to go to break, and when we come back for our last segment, we're, I'd really love to hear more about what you've learned in this last year, and, and let's, like, give our, let's end with giving our um, listeners some tips about what they can do to uh, get a little time back. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. the markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. 
produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Hi, welcome back. It's Cheryl Phillips hosting today for Kate, and we're in our last segment, unfortunately, with Bridget Schulte. We've been having a great conversation about her book, Overwhelmed. And we've just been talking about what a leader might be able to do in their own organization to try to create some, I don't even really like the balance, the work-life balance, but to at least reduce some of that overwhelming busyness in the churn, in the, the, the fast pace, and thinking about different ways to do this. And I wonder, in our last segment, Bridget, I'd really love to hear um, some of the things that you've been trying some of the things that you've heard and, and learned from others um, about how to interface with time in a different way. And if we can, I'd even love to get to the topic of leisure, mm-hmm. which honestly feels like like a distant fourth cousin that I can't ever remember the name of. <laughs> you were telling me a great story about leisure at the break. What? What? Can you tell that story about oh, the email? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I love it. I get uh, I get emails and and calls from readers all the time, uh, or to my Facebook page or to my Twitter. I, and I I absolutely love that. I love having these conversations go on all the time. And this one woman wrote to me today, and she said. Oh, I loved your book, and I was talking about it to a friend over the weekend, and she kind of kept looking at me crazy. And then I realized, instead of saying leisure time, I was talking—I was calling it luxury time—and <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's so true because we tend to think of it as a luxury. And I think, uh, the, in the course of reporting the book and doing all of the research, particularly on the neuroscience, that is one of the things that has struck me the most: is that leisure time is not a luxury. It is really a huge part of not only living a good life and feeling like you've li- you're living a good life and that you're you're having joy and and that you're kind of living inside your life and not just watching it scream past you. But I think that this is really important for for leaders and particularly people in business to understand that that sense of leisure, uh, the sense of taking a break, uh, is critical, really critical for doing effective work. Yeah, and, and I, really I like being how you, productive. You know, you quote um, Tara Brock, who's of course a local person who we national as well, but we get the luxury of having her locally. And yeah, um, when she talks about that, we're not really we're just skimming the surface of our life instead of dropping into our lives. And I think that's such a profound way to say how it often feels to those of us who are uh, working and doing all the other quick, quick movement that we're doing in life. So what are some of the, um, you know, in your very last section of the book is called, I think, Just One, just one Thing? Mm-hmm. Do One do, Thing? Do One Thing. Do One yeah. Thing. Yeah. So over this past year, I'd love to hear some of the things that you've been trying. Like, what is, what's the answer here? What's the <laughs> anecdote? It's not an answer, of course. But what are some of the anecdotes? Right, interfacing with our time differently. What? Tell me some of the things you're trying or that you've you've learned from others. Yeah. Well, I think the the first thing that I really want to say that is most important is that you know, look, I haven't figured it all out. You know, um, it's not like I'm all of a sudden some guru and and you know floating on petals all the time. Um, I still struggle with all of this stuff, but I think what's different is that I really have hope because I've seen how it's done differently. So I I see that it's possible, and that. 
so I think what's changed for me is I can see more clearly, um, like, oh, it, when I find myself doing too much work, it's like, wait a minute, I'm being an ideal worker here. Do I really, you know, is this really important to do, just putting in these hours? You know, am I really focused on what the mission is? So I see more clearly. Um, we've really changed things at home enormously. My husband and I got really out of whack, and I was kind of doing it all because I had these old movies playing in my head that I had to do everything at home and be this perfect mother. And so we've really done a lot of work to shift where we share things more fairly, and I will say that that has not only cleared up some of my time, but it's cleared up space in my head because, you know, I write about contaminated time, and that's huge for women in particular because... Can you, can you pause, Bridget, and just say that again? Because, again, this is a phrase that really grabbed me. So contaminated time. Contaminated tell, our, time. Tell, tell us what that really means. Yeah, what that means is, and I, I did not make up that term, although I wish I had. Um, <laughs> it's a term that sociologists and psychologists use. And, and basically what that means is that you, you can be in a moment that perhaps looks like leisure from the outside, but on the inside, your head is just churning, you're worrying, you're thinking, you're planning, uh, and that's something that, that they found is particularly true of women, because women are still doing twice the housework, twice the childcare, uh, even when they're working full time, so that our gender roles haven't really caught up with the way we're living. So, so women tend to feel like, uh, you know, they're not really living fully in their lives because they're just so lost in their heads all the time, and that contaminates your time. I thought that was so brilliant. And so I would say that my time is not as contaminated because I don't have to keep all of that in mind, that we're not, I'm not just delegating, I'm not in charge, and then my husband is, quote-unquote, helping me. We're really making an effort to be more partners. And so if it's his job, I don't think about it. And if it doesn't get done, it's his problem. And if it doesn't get done to my standards, well, then that's my problem, and i got to get over it. Right, so and so you're, you're working a little bit also with not having perfectionism, having good, good is enough, right, really instead true. of perfect. Good yeah. is enough. And I think the other thing is I catch myself more often. I'd say that one of the biggest things that I do is I pause regularly. I jump off that treadmill. And I do. I still get on the treadmill, but I catch myself earlier. And I'll say, wait a minute, what's really important here? Like yesterday, I, you know, even yesterday, I've got taxes to do. I've got invoices to send out. You know, I'm, I'm just back from an overseas trip. I've got emails to catch up on. I've got work to do. And uh, I, I hadn't seen my husband in a week. And uh, I was working in my office and and it's Sunday, right? And I should be enjoying myself. And, right. and he came in and he said, let's go take a walk. And I was about to say, no, i got too much to do. And I thought, you know, it, it was that moment where I stopped. I caught myself and I paused. I'm like, you know, at the end of my life, what am I going to remember? The fact that I got all this stuff done on a Sunday or that I had a walk with my husband on a beautiful day. I'm like, I put everything down. It's like, let's go for a walk. Ah, that's a a great story. And so what is the practice that you think? I I like the the practice that you did in somebody else's class. You didn't create this uh, about doing really, and and I use this in my classes as well, where we have people think about their ideal week or we have them look back at their week and then think about um, what really matters to you and see what kind of matchup there is. Is there anything you you've, you've any way you've used that you think would be useful to let folks know about? Well, I think that that is you know that's clearly something that that I keep trying to work on. It's like when I put my to do list together, you know, because we all try to you know the one thing that I've learned is that our working memory can keep only seven things in it in it at one point. So if you write things down, it does give you a sense of ease. That does help some of that kind of anxiety. 
So I write things down. But the other thing, before, then I would feel like I had to do it all before I could relax or I had to do it all before the end of the day. And then I would always feel stressed out because you can't do it all. And so I try to be uh, much more self, much more forgiving. If I do one thing on the list, that's fine. That's enough. I uh, I try to be um, keep in mind it, not only kind of like where I am, but where I want to go. W- you know what I want. What I want this week to be like. What I want this year to be like. And do I have any space for that in my week and in my calendar? Um, so so I try to look at my time in a very different way. Um, and I don't. I, I guess I'm not as ruled by the to-do list as I used to be. Um, I still have them, but I give myself permission to just know that it's there, so it's out of my head, but that I don't have to do it all today. And it, it sounds like, and I love this um, nuance. It's an important distinction. I think it's a different kind of to-do list. So you do that brain dump. You know, David Allen talks about the yep, brain dump. Or I, I call love it the, my brain the, dump. That's right, my brain or the dump. mind sweep, or even the worry journal. Like anything. To, I always say to clients, when you're feeling that overwhelmed, this, just stop, drop, and write. Like, get it all out of your head. Yes. So I love that. But then you're really calling out of that. You're getting rid of that, that crazy other 95% of junk that doesn't matter and really thinking about what are the, what are the big things on here that matter this week, that yes. matter this day, and really focusing in on that. Can you talk about um, also how if you're doing, have you been practicing at all with the the 90 minutes of concentrated work, so sort of the Tony Schwartz idea of pulsing, the power of pulse and and how our rhythms work. Have you been trying that out and how's that going for you? Yeah, I I would say that that's that's another one of the biggest changes that uh, that's been huge for me. Um, Taking regular time to pause, I do meditate more often now. But the other thing is I really try to work in concentrated pulses. So when I do my to-do list now, I'll think about what's the most one most important thing to do today, uh, whether it's my, uh, you know, on kind of like whether it's directed from me, this is what's important to me, or this is my job and this is what's got to get done today. And I'll try to do that first. And then I do use timers. I set a timer. I, it's funny. I've got this one that's like a, it's called a howler. <laughs> and so when my 90 <laughs> minutes is up, it howls like a wolf, <laughs> which is kind of weird and fun. But so I, I do use timers quite a bit. And I'll work in 30, 45, or 90-minute pulses. And then I will take a break and go get a cup of coffee or take a walk around the block or um, get up and talk to my colleagues. Or at that point, then I'll kind of gather all the, you know, because you always will have home stuff that you've got to somehow do, and you have to do it in work hours when other people are there. That's when I'll email my kids' teachers or I'll get home stuff done. I'll take like five or ten minutes, kind of gather that time rather than really like chunking I, it, chunking I really, your time. I, I'm much better about chunking my time, and then it does it doesn't feel as scattered and as fragmented when I do that. That's so great. Gathering all that confetti to take us all the way back to the beginning right. of the conversation. Really right. gathering that confetti together. So I love those I love those thoughts. I, I personally think sort of the time chunking, meaning putting like things together. So you can use that part of your brain and that ninety minutes off follow, ninety minutes on followed by a break or even an hour intense work followed by a break. Mm-hmm. Um, such incredibly good practices. Okay, so take us, and we talked a little bit about this, but before we end, I really do want to just hear any other thoughts you have about leisure. And, and in your book, you say, you know, when one of the, one of the researchers you were talking to uh, asked you, what does leisure look like to you? And you, your reply was, a sick day, right? <laughs> 
So, and I'm sort of reminded of the commercial these days where the kids are saying to their parents, what do you mean you're losing a vacation day? It's a vacation day, right? And they're lecturing their parents about how crazy that is to lose a vacation day. Right. So, yeah, so how do we get to this thing? Is it really possible to get to this thing called leisure? Yeah, absolutely. I did a a really interesting uh, panel discussion with... Um, the um, someone from the ambassador uh, from Denmark um, last year when we were doing this. And Denmark, you know, they were like the United States at one point, and they really turned it around and made a value of leisure. And I think that we can do that as well. And I think the thing that's important to remember about leisure, when I said a sick day, it's really all about choosing, having an active choice in what you do and control over your time. And those are the really the only two things that are that are required for leisure. That it's um, that it's something that you've chosen, and it and it can be whatever it is at that moment that feels good to you. Yeah. And and you know the Greeks said that was the place that we were not only uh, refreshing our souls, but we were most fully human. And I think uh, you know that's clearly something we all need in our lives. Ah, uh, beautiful. That is that's such a. Perfect way to complete. Um, so we're so happy you've been on. I want you for three more hours, so we'll have to figure out when to have you back again. Uh, Bridget Schulte, thank you so much for joining us today. And if you don't have her book, um, go find it. It's really a worthwhile piece of, a piece of work. Thank you again. Thanks for the work, and thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.